Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I don't even know what to say. This is just like the smartest podcast episode I've ever listened to, and I was doing it. But all credit goes to my guest, Brian Ramel, expert on, I don't, he's an expert on everything, but we talk consciousness, intelligence, quantum mechanics, AI, outrage, the fact that everyone is outraged and what the cure for that might be. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Brian, I've been following you for years, of course, on Twitter. I, I started following you because you would tweet this like incredibly crazy stuff, like all these things from around the world that were just fascinating. And I was trying to find, like some of them were like years old because I've been following you for years. What were like some of the things you tweeted that were just, <laughs> it was like you searched the world for incredibly interesting things that I'd never seen before. They were interesting intellectually and visually. And then you would tweet them. Like, what's an example? Do you remember? Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I would I, I would go into a coronary fit right now trying to remember some of them. Uh, you know I got to I got to say well first off James thank you uh such an honor to be here uh deep fan of your work uh oh, yeah my pleasure basically all your books big subscriber on paradigm so thank you for that and uh oh, you've okay. made me some money in stocks so I appreciate that but uh Excellent. so there's a method to my madness uh I I I I saw Twitter cuz I had come off of Quora I'd been one of Quora's top writers for a couple of years and I was a bit of a Twitter snob. I thought that it was hot takes, it was drive-by commenting, and it was very little commitment intellectually to what people were saying. And that's fine, you know, I'm not judging that. I just didn't want to participate. So I started creating what I feel ultimately now is a sort of human Rorschach test across social media. I just throw out ideas and concepts that are intriguing and they're designed to make you think. I think what I really try to do most of the time is I'm trying to elicit thought. What do you see here? And what's your first reaction? And was your first reaction right? What's your second reaction? And um, and I just kind of went with it. So yeah, there would be all sorts of things. I really like showing animal intelligence because I've always been involved in uh, machine intelligence. And I think if we don't understand animal intelligence to some degree, even even primates, right? How are we going to really understand machine intelligence and what is intelligence and things of that nature? So Twitter kind of became an open market of my ideas, and uh, yeah, I get very eclectic at times. <laughs> yeah, like what what were some of the? I, I remember some of the animal ones. Like what were what were some of the things that intrigued you on animal intelligence? Yeah, intrigued you so much that you tweeted about it. Oh, okay. So one of the ones that I thought was really quite profound. It's sort of uh, my concept of what I call the Kim Peek proof. Kim Peek was Rain Man in in the uh, Dustin Hoffman movie. Oh, that was based on a real person? Absolutely. Kim Peek, I, I actually got to meet him briefly, uh, incredibly beautiful individual. And what we learned about Kim Peek is the limits of human capability uh, mentally. 
uh, he actually was able to recite to you exactly what the weather was like the day you were born, what day of the week it was, all sorts of trivial things about who was the best baseball player at that particular moment in time, right? What, what game was being played that day? I mean, just incredible things. So my concept about any scientific theory is that if you cannot account for the outlier in the theory, you really don't have a theory. You have sort of a postulation. What, what do you mean? Like, like what, what, what uh, I, I don't understand. So let's say, <laughs> what's an example of scientific theory that, that where there's an outlier, like the theory of relativity? All right, well, 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 let's keep it with Kim for a second, right? So, so how do you explain? Yeah. So Kim had encephalitis, right? The swelling of the brain, which essentially broke down his corpus callosum, that sort of piece that connects your right and left hemisphere. Uh, it's not widely known exactly why he developed what is a savantism, right? A sort of a savantic uh, syndrome. Kim, uh, in one of the clips that I put up there, and it wasn't really about Kim. It was about primates. It was about this particular primate research center in Japan that was showing that a chimpanzee can be trained to remember a flash of 45 numbers on a grid of about 100 grid and remember the sequence after it flashes on. Now, humans can't do that. It's like, how did that primate know how to do that? Why? How, how fast was the flash? How, how many seconds were you allowed like to look at Like half a second, maybe a second at maximum. Wow. And some of these guys and gals were trained, and some did better than others, but the fact that one was able to do it, 100 out of 100 monkeys, right? Uh, the fact that one was able to do it fascinated the heck out of me. So I started studying the brain more, and I said, okay, what did humans give up that chimpanzees had that we don't have. Well, it turns out it's Broca and Wernicke or the phonological loop. So we gave up short-term memory to be able to do what we're doing right now is having a conversation. So I started really diving into, and again, this is all based on, on, on computer science ultimately, but I started diving in. What is human creativity and human memory? Well, you have the right hemisphere technically. And again, some of this is symbolic talk. I'm not trying to talk in you know, the, the sense of where uh, neurobiology and neuropsychology uh, is at, at this moment. But you have the right hemisphere, which is your creative thought process. And let's call that a bunch of nebulous clouds that you have to assemble to the left hemisphere, which is a serial chain of thought that is only so long. Once you lose that chain of thought, the idea sort of dissipates and you get frustrated. And I see this with creative people, songwriters, writer, you know, book writers, uh, you know, people like yourself that are just trying to come up with that idea, and it just dissipates. Where did it come from? Where did it go? So it came from potentially the right hemisphere, and then the process of mechanicalizing it. Now, mechanicalizing it to speech is easier because it flows out of us. We're not we're not translating the inner monologue, that voice we hear when we read or when we type sometimes. But when we have to mechanicalize it to a keyboard or writing it on a piece of paper, there's a mechanical slowdown in that process. So the flow is broken and sometimes ideas and thoughts dissipate. So we went from 10 fingers to thumb clawing on a glass screen. And so what happens when you do that? Well, the flow of ideas slows down significantly. So much so that I believe that it, it is one of the underlying premises for hostility that we see in social media. I think the inability to emote correctly by using all of your uh, functionality, your micro movements in your face, your, my hand movements, all of this frustrates people. They can't communicate correctly because we're communicating through an archival system, right? So think about this, James. Typing was designed for archival purposes more than it was for communication purposes. Right. And by, by archival, you mean I would type something so I could store it so other people could later exactly. read it. And right now we're kind of, we're kind of archiving in real time to each other. We're like archiving to, directly to yes. each other. And, and, and the problem is about 80% of what humans use to communicate being in a physical presence or doing what we're doing with the video here, video definitely helps, 
uh, but it doesn't complete everything because there's nuances you pick up when you're physically present with somebody that you don't get otherwise. And I think those nuances are totally gone when we're throwing emojis at each other because emojis are completely open to interpretation. There's, there's at least two interpretations yeah. to them. One is the direct and one is the ironic, funny version of that emoji. And none of it is really useful. So we're, we've kind of de-evolved in our communication. So that gets back to the monkey scenario, right? Okay, and we'll kind of go back to Kim Peek now. So if the brain, in fact, can store as much information that if our listeners remember Rain Man, Kim Peek was better than Dustin Hoffman's presentation of Rain Man. He was absolutely phenomenal. And his social skills was actually uh, quite a few degrees higher. Um, he did have some of the situations of communication that savants had. So what we have now is we have an outlier. We have somebody that can hold almost everything they've ever seen and heard. So it's in the brain. And that was a question I've had ever since I was a child is how much of the brain is really stored and how does it stay there? And where is the brain? Because we know holographically, we can't pull out a single memory out of somebody's brain. We wish we could, right? You can't laser cut. Let's take that little unpleasant memory out of your brain. It's holographically stored. In fact, I later found out through Candace Pert, uh, Pert's work, uh, Molecules of Emotion, is that your memories are stored throughout your body through a neuropeptide memory system, a chemical memory system. And that's why when we get heartbroken, right? Think about that hurt. That love that this it just tore you apart. Where does it? Do you feel it here? You probably feel it here, or your gut. Right. You're, so you, your heart. Yeah. Right. There's and there's a, uh, more neurochemicals or more serotonin in the gut than in exactly. the brain. Exactly. Right? And that's evolutionarily wise. That was for us to remember this food good, this food bad. Right. Because we had to have a way. Right. Humans are born naked. Right. We don't. We have to be taught for the first eight years how to get through this world or we're going to die, right? That's just the realities of it. And our brain was is as big as it's going to get, you know, uh, beyond killing moms to a high degree, right? Essentially, the, the containment of the human skull is based upon how wide the hips can be displaced on a female before it's impossible for them to walk. I mean, that's really th the bottom line. And yet there's trillions of possible bites that could be stored in the brain, right? Because every possible ways to connect the neurons in your brain and in your body is could be another memory, another thought, another another way of awakening a mem memory. Exactly. So if you're dealing with somebody uh, like for a stroke patient or somebody with dementia, Alzheimer's, you can usually bring something more of a higher response if you put something that they smell that brings back a memory. I like to use the apple pie concept. Go back and think about the first time you've ever smelled apple pie. Hopefully your mom baked or your caregiver baked. And the first time it was in front of you, hot apple pie baked. What does that sound like? And already a lot of things start happening. Most of us, the like apple pie starts salivating. All right. So what's going on there? It's setting off a whole series of memory. Now, if you've never tasted apple pie or anything that might feel like that, you're not going to have that response. So the memory is encoded all over the place. And to me, that's fascinating because we're trying to create artificial intelligence, but we're not fully understanding human intelligence. We're not understanding human consciousness because really it's not intelligence as much as consciousness that we really need to get, kind of get to the bottom of. What is consciousness? Where is it? Where does it come from? Where does it go? Tell me more about, like, how is Kin Peak the outlier of a theory? So it's a great question, James. So basically, if you essentially say that the human brain can only hold so much memory uh, and then it, 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 it stops, or you don't remember everything that has ever been done to you because you can't recall it, I uh, call bunk on that. I believe that the human sense organs record basically everything. Now, I'm a really big fan of uh, Tor Norristander's The User Illusion. And a lot of my work is based upon not just his body of work. I, I, I tell everybody to read this book. It will absolutely profoundly change you. 
on everything you think. So say the book again. Tor North right Standards, The User Illusion. So James, I was such a nerd. I followed this guy during his book tour. I went to a couple of his signings because I knew some of the work by Lashley and others that were trying to understand where consciousness was in the brain. And that came from a whole series of weird coincidences in my life growing up near Princeton and spending a lot of time at Princeton University as a child. Where, where, where'd you grow up near Princeton? Uh, well, I, I, I was born in Newark. I, I, I uh, had my young life in Carteret, the armpit of New Jersey. And then I wound up in Flemington. And then from Flemington, I spent a lot of time in Princeton. I had friends whose parents worked at the university, the Institute of Advanced Study, uh, David Sarnoff Research Center, and Bell Laboratories. So, uh, you know, I, I'm talking about 60s and 70s because I'm an old man. And that was the prime time of, of Bell Laboratories. Bell Laboratories had so many incredible thinkers who were paid just to think, walk around barefoot, in your pajamas way before it was cool, no shaving for two or three weeks. You would essentially think they're homeless and nobody knew what they were thinking about, but they were paid to be there. Same thing. That's with funny. The inst- People think I'm homeless, <laughs> even though I try not to be look like I'm homeless. <laughs> Don't change, man. Uh, yeah, I, this is not my normal look either. But um, so, so anyway, in that environment, I started to really feel that we need to understand consciousness at a very young age. And I was a rationalist. I thought I was going to be a physicist uh, growing up. That's why I loved Princeton so much. And and uh, mostly uh, quantum physics is where I wanted to be. But also planetary science uh, had a, a lot of influence by Carl Sagan, obviously, and, uh, uh, you know, people of that epoch. But I started realizing that quantum physics didn't give us answers. It gave us actually a lot more questions. And the thing that really made me very angry about quantum physics is the observer uh, aspect of it. I thought that that had to be the most astrological explanation of reality that could ever happen. So I rejected it. So I got involved in business <laughs> and and uh, and computers and stuff like that because I can control the rationality within, within uh, computer language. Uh, that was way irrational. But it did not stop me from continuing my curiosity. So quantum physics led me into trying to understand the brain and to understand the observer. Why the heck does an observation change a scientific uh, test? Now, some people will say, well, it's not really like that, Brian. You don't It is. Ultimately, it is. Whether it's photons or something, the test is changing via the observation. And then um, entanglement was the next thing that completely freaked me out. How could how could matter be entangled? And how could that matter communicate across, apparently, especially in the 70s, apparently across light years of distance instantly? How is that possible? Do we have a correct theory to explain that? No, we don't. We didn't then and we don't now. Uh, So that puts you to the edge. If you are an empirical scientist, you got to go to the edge and look over and say, guys, gals, we don't really have a theory, really we have the best possible prediction. And that's kind of the thing. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. $1,000 
my home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you think about it, we don't really have a theory about anything. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and, and, you know, you think of like Stephen Hawking's The Theory of Everything, you know, A Brief History of Everything. We don't really know anything because... So quantum mechanics are the basic building blocks of all physics, all reality, and we just don't understand how it works. There's, I mean, there are particles even called strange quarks because it's just so strange. We just don't even know how a clue of how it works. And then the other big important thing, consciousness, which you brought up, we don't have a real theory of that. We have, we have no better understanding of that than we had five thousand years ago. For all we know, they had a better understanding (laughs) five thousand years ago than we have now. And so now we're trying to break it down using science that I'm sure is primitive compared to what's actually needed to understand these things. And we're trying to make some sense of it. You know, theoreticians have their their ideas and experimentalists have their ideas, but none of it really works. We haven't concluded anything. You know, yes, we could make, as you know, for the movie this weekend was Oppenheimer. We can make a nuclear bomb. We can make a rocket ship. We can make a computer. But these are all are all mechanical things. Like you put these tools together and it works according to Newton's laws of physics. But, you know, like, like we're decades away probably from real quantum computing. And again, we're probably, I'd like your opinion on this, we're probably decades away from any real intelligence and in artificial intelligence. Right now, it's like these massive statistical models, but we don't have, like, like you were beginning to allude to with the, the brain being different from, from Exactly, AI. James. Uh, brilliant. You know, so... Let's look at it from a perspective of, you know, scientific explanation uh, from a chemical and electronic and electrical stand standpoint within the brain. We are not even sure what particular chemicals. You know, again, we can go to the very basics. You know, we a lot of people believe that uh, the science of chemistry is fully understood, and uh, certainly it must be fully understood within a human body. But you change just a couple of different chemicals in somebody, they're going to think dramatically different. And we're seeing it play out as a real-time experiment in, in our environment. Uh, we're throwing chemicals out there 
We don't know what the neurotropic effects are on people. We do know that there are neurotropic effects, but we don't know what the grand neurotropic effects are until we come back two or 300 years and say, those crazy people, I can't believe they did that. And that's, go- that's coming. We live long enough and you and I be like four or 500 years, I don't know. Uh, we're gonna look back and say, oh yeah, that was a big debate, but it was a debate about politics and philosophy had nothing to do with chemicals. I, you know, And that's kind of the problem is chemicals divide, divine your feeling and, and your construct of the world, right? So if you're chemically off just a little bit, uh, your view of the world is dramatically changed. It's a very, very fine tuning. And, you know, ancients understood the pineal gland as being vitally important, so important that the pine cone became such a big thing all the way to Sumerian times, all the way to, to the Pope's staff. There's a pine cone under Jesus's feet, all the way down to Sumerians, uh, uh, you know, they're holding pine cones. The pine cone represents the pineal gland. Uh, that's symbolism. Why does it represent, how do they even know about that gland in, in Sumerian? Unfortunately, when you brutally break somebody's brain open, the pineal gland looks like a pine cone, uh, it, almost precisely. Really? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and it's not a guess. This is not us philosophizing. They actually pointed out, they... The Egyptians actually talked about, you know, the seat of uh, of consciousness essentially was within the pine cone or the pineal gland. And why, why do they think that? Like, why did they have a sense that that was the seat of consciousness? Well, they uh, they poked uh, they poked things into it through the eye sockets uh, while people were alive. They cut open skulls. South America, we can see a lot of people that have had their skulls cut open and lived. Uh, you know, in in ancient times. And they believe that we don't know why. We know that maybe uh, from the very basic, we can speculate that proto-doctors were experimenting with people's brains. I don't know how they got people to agree with it. Hey, buddy, let me cut open, you know. Well, they could have been tortured or slaves or whatever. Yeah, it could have been. But why why they fixated on that gland is... Always interesting. We can go to uh, certainly um, uh, Indus Valley, what, what, you know, India, and, and things of that. You know, the Bende is a representation of the third eye. We can go to um, you know uh, parts of Asia. Uh, certainly, the Greeks talked about it. Um, all of this stuff plays out to the pineal pineal gland. We don't fully understand it. Why? Well, all right, we call it a third eye. Here's what's interesting there's retina tissue within the pineal gland. Now, we only found that out about 100 years ago, that there's full-on retina tissue in the pineal gland. So, uh, hold it, what's going on? Uh, Thousands of years ago, they called it a third eye, but it is in fact an eye embedded essentially within the center of your brain. And it's not even a part of your brain, it's more of a part of your organ. What does that mean though, that there's retinal tissue? Like, does it transmit um, information to the eyes no. so that we see things with no, it? No, it is an eye in and, in and of itself. Uh, it, it, What's it looking at? Photochromatic discharges of light within the fluid of the pineal gland is the best guess I, I can give you. Um, a photochromatic and pressure chromatic um, type of crystalline structures that are in the fluid within. But what does that mean? Like, I why- don't know. For an evolutionary reason, like why why do we need to look at that? I have no idea other than to look at ancient history. This is what fascinates me about the frontier of science. Um, James, this is like, why are we looking into that more, uh, more uh, uh, you know, ironically here, why are we looking into that more? What does it represent? So if you were to go to most brain researchers to say the pineal gland is sort of a vestigial organ it, when we were low-end reptiles, it may have served some function about mediating your day-night cycle. We do know melatonin is released when the uh, pineal gland is uh, entering into a sort of darker, maybe twilight type of stage, and that people with certain melatonin imbalances tend to have a problem with the pineal gland calcification things of that level. I don't really talk about this much because it, it, it can really go down a deep rabbit hole because we're, we're, we're looking at ancient, ancient principles 
and they're using the crude language of their epoch. And we're trying to compare it to our scientific language of this epoch. So whenever we're looking at explanations in antiquity, they can only explain through relativity of what they knew at that period in that epoch, right? And so to us, it looks crude, it looks childlike, it looks uninformed, but it may be very well-informed and it may be not very crude. It's just the wording to us seems to be very non-scientific. They certainly knew that the pineal gland meant something. Going, like, winding it back to, to Kim Peek, are you suggesting that as humans evolved to have things like speech and longer-term memory, we gave up short-term memory? So when Kim Peek suffered from encephalitis, for instance, he lost some abilities to socialize and communicate and perhaps have long-term memory. But in return, the savantism aspect, he gained this enormous, enormous short-term memory. Exactly. Or long-term. Or or, or, tri- or trivia. To, or he got, he got long-term memory because he could remember facts from like 100 years ago Facts or that we would never even digest. We would not remember the weather on the day that somebody was born. I mean, and we're talking anybody. You just tell them tell him what, you know, what your year uh, and day, he'll tell you the day of the week and what the weather was like in your part of the country. That's how finite it was. How he Mm -hmm. knew that, he read a lot. He certainly read some books more than others, trivia books about sports. He was incredible about biblical things. He made some insights that are absolutely, I think, prophetic in my view. Uh, You know, he, well, he was born a Mormon, uh, in Utah, and uh, he he saw the Bible and uh, other Mormon uh, scriptures as being very profound. He saw the he he saw the 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 holy books very much as a method for aligning your life with the tragedies of life. Is I'm I'm subtexting a lot of this here. Um, he said that they were much more than about God and religion, and he said that they certainly were. He absolutely believed that there was a God. There was no no question. He thought it was ridiculous that that we were even questioning it. You know, he said, how could you? He wouldn't even have a talk about it. And it wasn't programming. It was just, it was his insight from, you know, enveloping so much knowledge. And I find the same is true with AI. It's, it's very interesting. And AI is living on our language, a human construct, right? And we can jump into that Getting out of this rabbit hole, I took you into. I'm just so sorry, but uh, no, yeah. it's fascinating. So, so Kim, Kim had some insights about that, and he said these books w- were guides so that you could live a better life. And he said the life that's going to take place after I leave. And he knew he was not going to be around long. And this was, you know, a, a 15 years before he passed away. Uh, he just knew, and, and he knew he was on borrowed time. The doctor wanted to put him away in an institution and lobotomize him for his own uh, safety. And his parents said no. And, you know, you can look up Kim Peek um, uh, making a comment about the doctor wanted to go out and play golf. So he ha- he gave the parents three minutes, lobotomize him and institutionalize him. I got a game to go play. And 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 it, Kim just jokes, her, this is how funny it is. It, he, he had enough knowledge and humanity connection that he could make a joke out of it. Ah, go and play golf, doc, you know, and it, and he laughs, you know. So he had, a, he had an incredible sense of humor, much more than the, the than the the humor that Dustin Hoffman had. Uh, and Dustin w- played an interesting character, but it wasn't really Kim, but it was based on him. So w- what 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 he basically said is that y- humanity is going to regress into sort of a cesspool. He used the word cesspool. Uh, because there were no uh, guides to keep you uh, doing the right things. You know, if, if you're only answering to yourself, then essentially uh, you're going to keep compromising yourself until you pull yourself down to the lowest possible element. And that was his insight. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise. 
dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're, You're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. This is interesting because you look at it from what's going on in society and it's it's almost like a contradiction because right now our innovations per decade are amazing. Like in the, just in the past decade, we have so much innovation in genomics, which is actually editing DNA in innovation in AI, innovation in 3d printing, automation, space travel, computers. It's amazing. And yet at the same time, I'm willing to bet that the actual IQs of people 5,000 years ago were higher than they are now, just because we get to just sit in front of a TV and zone out for, you know, on average six hours a day, you know, at least in the U S and they didn't do that. They had to be aware of every single plant, animal, tribe, worm, mosquito, hut, whatever in a, five mile radius of wherever they were. And they were constantly moving around. They had to constantly think because their lives depended on it. And our lives just don't. And and, and James, incredible insight, because basically by reducing us to essentially being at the ultimate machine, right? Because let's look at humanity. Humanity is basically tool builder and storyteller. That's our existence. We're two tool builders and storytellers. If we took that away, we basically wouldn't exist. And everybody has to become a storyteller. Um, that is the reality of life. We have to we have to become a salesperson, right? We have to convince people. And this is what's really funny is that we diluted ourselves into this sort of STEM thing that we can kind of go off and be so abstract that we don't need to be a storyteller 
or even tool builder. We can just sort of intellectualize it. And and the Greeks failed in that. And and by the way, I just want I I and I'm sorry to interrupt and and probably listeners will, will criticize me, but I just want to explain like we had to evolve extreme storytelling ability because we're relatively weak animals <laughs> compared to even chimpanzees. Absolutely. And so in order we had to communicate to our kids, hey, uh, don't go over the mountain because we knew that's where the lions were. We had to tell them that's where the that's where Satan is. And yeah. we have to tell a whole story about Satan and monsters. And we had to develop storytelling ability to basically help the next generation live longer. Absolutely. And because they wouldn't live without stories. We didn't have... And then, of course, we could build tools to help us eat because, again, we're relatively weak. We can't just, like, kill something and, and eat it. We have to... It's hard for us to kill. It's hard for us to cook. Like we had, we had to develop ability to build tools so we could plant things and do other. Absolutely, things. Absolutely, James. So so the storytelling is usually through allegorical stories, right? The only it, let's imagine we didn't have a writing system. We only had a communication system, which is like ninety nine percent of human existence. We had no writing system. We had a communication system, and so the way you communicate is through bold allegorical stories. But we needed to record it. So how did we re first record our allegorical stories? We looked up. We looked up at the unchanging sky and these constellations became allegorical stories to our, to our youth and our, and our younger folks that would pass it on. So our first books were the stars. So when we looked up, we would say, oh, that's the lion and the story of the great lion that overcame, you know, and these stories. Joseph Campbell, a hero with a thousand faces and uh, the, the hero's journey and, and, and all of that. Joseph Campbell cataloged all of these allegorical stories. And he came to the same conclusion, and I am, and certainly I'm sure you do, is that all of these allegorical stories are almost precisely the same. There's about 20 of them. And they're all about the hero's journey monomyth of what we're all going through. And we go through many of them. We go through the macro hero's journey from life to uh, death. And then we go to these sort of micro cycles uh, within a day or a week, uh, you know, that we're going on the, uh, the you know, the abyss and uh, coming back from the abyss and things of that nature. But all of these stories had that pattern to them. And they're Jungian patterns, right? The, from, you know, Carl Jung, essentially. Jung took the inner space of the brain and the mind, which is what AI does, right? does the same thing. So AI is going to see the same Jungian patterns. And it says, wow, every single movie, everything, every single song, every single book, ultimately everything that we're attracted to is on a monomyth, is on a, a hero's journey. There is a, there's a bold allegorical story that's a part of it. And we know that all movies are formulas. If we break that formula big enough, it won't get funded because producers won't even put it out there. And this is why some really esoteric movies just don't resonate because we're looking for the pattern. Because part of human intelligence is pattern recognition and pattern matching. Did I see that before? Has anybody seen that before? Can somebody see that before? Please help us. Because we're looking for that pattern. We're desperate for it because our very existence depends on trying to grok and decode the unknown that's in front of us. We're the only animals that we know of on this planet, maybe off world after yesterday, uh, that is in constant search of decoding the pattern. And a lot of times, if you're fast at decoding pattern, you're considered intelligent. So if I'm, at, if, if I'm fast at adding numbers together, is that intelligence? Well, computers can do numbers uh, added together even better than Kim Peek. Kim was great at adding numbers together. It's 15 digit numbers. I think the largest one I heard him do is 45 digits uh, added together, multiplied, boom, done. But a computer can do it better. Does that make us inept? Does that make us cower? No, the computer is better at adding those numbers together. Now, can computers do other things faster? And we can dive into that, what, what AI is doing. But essentially, yes, Fastness, to me, doesn't equate with intelligence. It's just fastness. But we have deluded ourselves. That person is fast. They're smarter than I am. That equated very well when we were out on the savannah. The person who could think fast 
under a pressure situation tended to live. So we are the generations of the fast thinkers. There's no doubt about it. Every single one of us are from those because the ones that didn't think fast, they didn't make it. So we are the sum total of that. So it's built into our DNA. Fast thinking means better survival ability. But you know, and you've written about this, you've talked about it, fast thinking isn't necessarily uh, always the best result. It's the best result under the time compression of that circumstance. But retrospect allows a much more nuance of that scenario. Social media makes fast response down into microseconds. Uh, the hot take. Something happens politically, you've already aligned to a specific team. This is my team. I don't care if the entire team changes. I like their, I like their flags. I like their uniforms. I'm sticking with my team. When I was a kid, you know, I grew up back East, Mets, Yankees, right? You know, and I was getting old enough where the entire team plus the coach was gone, was replaced. But I had friends who were Yankees fans or Mets fans. I'm like, dude, everybody in that team is gone. The coach is gone. There's nothing other than the uniform and the name. I'm a Yankees fan. We have tribalized ourselves into these categories and it's not a modern phenomenon. It's an ancient phenomenon. And it, it, it all wraps up into this fast thinking, who is, who is a winner? Winning in an in ancestral sense is literally living. <laughs> all right. You know, you survived being attacked by a, a very unlikely another clan because we really didn't battle as much as the movies would, would have us believe. That was very unlikely. And the other thing is, um, how did we survive food-wise? Who was able to ascertain the right food to eat? Turns out, the wise old men and the wise old women of that tribe were the most valuable aspects of any tribe. They were also the first thing that was taken out when you conquered another tribe, is you would take out the wise people. Well, it, it, it's interesting because as you age cognitively, the brain gets weaker at mm -hmm. fastness. Like you can, like, like I can no longer add numbers as fast as when I was in my twenties. I can no longer remember things as quickly as when I was in my twenties. But pattern recognition increases, and which is why, like the 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 peak age or the the yeah the peak age of a mathematician might be twenty five yeah. years old, but the peak age of a historian it turns out is in their sixties. Yeah. So because they can pattern recognize from oh this. This is like when we invented air conditioning in 1900. Invention of AI is like that in some weird way that they think of and they write a book about it. And uh, so the elders kind of have that that wisdom. And I think James, we're we're lacking. We are floating and drowning in a pool of uh, information and data, but we're starving of wisdom in this in this epoch more so than I think any time historically that I can account for. Uh, wisdom is turned upside down. Because we've we've given the highest attribute to the latest tech. You know, I'm I'm from the tech world, and we're riding this wave of AI. I mean, literally, just this morning, 27 new models were invented in AI in the open source community. And I'm trying to grok what the power of every model is, and trying to help clients and the the you know, the world that follows me which model is better to use under any particular circumstance. But on, on, on the, the aspect of wisdom, we just totally discount it. In fact, we have, we're the only epoch that I'm aware of that have reduced the elderly to an almost useless functionality. Uh, so much so that I worry for the people that are going to enter their 60s in 20 years. Uh, because as they enter their 60s, 20 years from now, uh, society is going to organize, if it continues on in the same mental gymnastics, they're going to see somebody in the 60s as being almost useless. You know, they're, okay, they can still do a job, but, you know, they're just, they're just not up to the changes. They're just not up to the rate of change. And of course, rate of change has been increasing multifold. Uh, I, I think we can really just say the start date was probably the invention of the vacuum tube 
is where the acceleration of rate of change. And throughout the 70s and 80s, uh, personal computers and things of that. And now AI, the rate of change is quite dramatic. I don't think very many experts in the field understand what this really means as far as the acceleration and the ability to understand it. So as you get older, the wisdom is a grounding effect. It, it lets you understand where you need to roll with punches, right? Hyperreactivity is probably one of the biggest problems that we have in society today. People are overreactive to something that they see. Uh, a, an older person might look at it and say, you know what? Let's see what happens in a couple of days. Yeah, keep your mouth shut and let's just you, see what happens. You're totally right. Like when I was in my 20s, if I got a letter from the IRS, I would consider jumping off the roof yeah, right then. Yeah. Now it usually takes me about a month before I consider it. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're still considering it, right? Yeah, so so the, that that heightened sensitivity is is being fed by certain AI algorithms within social media. Uh, we can say that there's one particular algorithm that's designed to pull you into hyperreactivity um, much more than people realize, and that's TikTok. And that's done through video, almost, again, a Rorschach type of uh, conditioning. Um, if you know certain biological responses to imagery, sounds, even flash, uh, even subliminal things that are implanted in some of this media, um, you know that you can start building a certain level of disposition within a person. And about 80% of the world is hypersensitive to being hypnotized. And they may not understand that. And I think the uh, other 20% are not hypersensitive, but still capable of it. And hypnotized, not necessarily in the kind of classic, like, look at this watch and fall asleep. Exactly. But just like the words we hear, the words we see, what you're saying basically is both TikTok and AI to an extent, they learn us, yeah. they learn from us by our responses. So like TikTok learns how many seconds we stayed on a video, exactly what categories, what thousand categories in overlapping is this video about? And then it's, and because it's able to fine tune those categories so much, just the way AI it does with, with a piece of text. And then, oh, James likes these thousand different contexts that overlap we're going to just keep feeding him more and more videos like this and maybe even guide him towards with some novelty right yeah. so the idea is over a, cro a, a cross section of people that have the same predispositions that you might have there's a model built not like there is a james model but in a sense there is within the grand uh, ai that say tiktok is using and so Getting outside the nefarious aspect of uh, a state actor and all that, we can leave that aside. Just looking at, at time consumption. Everybody is battling for your attention and your time. And, and the longer you spend in a TikTok where you don't feel time is moving, right? If you're engaged and there's just enough novelty to tip you over the edge to say, hold it, what was that? It, it, so it's novelty and familiarity mixed together in this very seductive dance with your brain. And then along the way, you can implant particular directionals uh, philosophically and emotionally. It's not very hard. Uh, we've been doing it with movies and TV. You know, anybody battling me? Uh, you know, have you ever seen a commercial that was a tearjerker? Have you ever cried at the end of the movie? Have you ever gotten, yeah, I'm, let's go after that person? You've been programmed. That's part of an emotional uh, programming. Well, think about like you grew up in the 60s and 70s. Think about the television, um, like television yeah. shows that you watched. Like everything was to, to sort of make, take things that were considered harsh in society, like, you know, you know the powers that be, for instance, considered hippies and drugs, yeah. harsh. Vietnam War was harsh. Civil rights was, was a harsh topic. And so then think of the shows you watched. The Partridge family sort of normalized the hippie. Monkeys. I mean, it was all psychedelic imagery. Yeah, the it's all psychedelic imagery, but without mentioning drugs. And then there was like the mod squad. So there's like, it's an FBI team that, you know, had yeah. afros and and dressed like hippies. And and then you had the Brady Bunch. It's somehow, were they divorced? Were they widowed? But it just sort of normalized the idea that families might be 
it's not like the normal family unit anymore. Things are a little different and it's okay. It's like everything we watched, pro, you know, think of all the war shows. I Dream yeah. of Jeannie was a war show. You know, Major Nelson yeah. was going to outer yeah. space to shoot people. <laughs> F Troop. Uh, Hogan's Heroes. You know, Hog Hogan's all, Heroes. Hogan's Heroes. Baba yeah. Black Sheep, Star Trek. Star Trek. You know, yeah. these are all like war shows, basically. Yeah. So, so basically, that's why when some people are very, very smart, they intellectualize this, saying, I, "I'm, I'm invulnerable to hypnotism." It's like, no, accept that fact of your humanity. We are emotional creatures. We are driven. Every single decision we make is ultimately a neuropeptide release of chemicals, which are by definition, emotions. So once we understand that we're emotional creatures, we accept that reality and then we build from there. The problem in society right now is that we think we're making rational decisions. We think that there's a logical decision that took place. And the user illusion will prove to you scientifically, because Tor Norris Standards is not a scientist per se, he's a science writer. And the late 90s, and, you know, if you were to write the book today, there's much more data and information uh, getting back to, you know, uh, what what reality is. There's a half-second delay that takes place from you doing something and you realizing that you did it. Your brain is making you think you did it, but the super person inside of you that let's, we can call it subconscious, or you can call it the editor of reality for you, because reality is being edited to you. We don't have real-time screens on our eyeballs. Uh, reality is being represented in the brain at a very low bit rate. It's 31 bits per second is, is consciousness. That's it. And anything beyond 31 bits per second, we are just getting background noise and information. We're not really, we're not really dealing with, with what's going on. So we have a throughput bandwidth issue. I call it the, um, well, call it the bandwidth issue. Um, you know, and then we have the uh, half-second delay problem. Those are the two fundamental things that user illusion that Tor Norris Standards wrote uh, presents, but it presents it in very dense material. I read it once a year. What's the half-second delay? The half-second delay is what a lot of people like to say in uh, street nomenclature as muscle memory. It's like, oh, I hit that ball because of muscle memory. Well, there is no muscle memory. It's not. It is your, in a sense, your subconscious that is doing it and you're letting it do it. Rather, you're, you're, you're giving up the control that you're in control of your reality and you're just letting it happen. And I'm sure you know this uh, being very creative is that when you get into the flow of things, you're kind of taking a step back. You're just letting things happen. And I, I see this. I've studied creative people my entire life find it fascinating. And the hardest thing is, is most people have imposter syndrome that are highly creative because they don't know where it came from and they don't know where it went when it's not there. Great songwriters, great novelists. They are literally in fear that it may not come back one day. You know, you can intellectualize it ex post facto. After the fact, you can say, oh yes, of course, I studied this, I studied that, and that's how I came up with that. But the spark of insight that creative spark that comes into you, nobody's been able to fully define it. It's a collection of all of these different pieces that if you take a step back, combined in a way that's magic. But if you try to force it, if you try to overthink it, and you try to capture a cloud in your hand or get a, a cup of water by grabbing it as much as you can, it dissipates. Great episode, great conversation. We're going to have part two all about consciousness. And then part three, the most intense conversation I've ever had about AI in my life with Brian Romel, such a, a smart guy, such a great conversation. I really love talking to Brian. Stay tuned for not only discussions about consciousness, AI, quantum mechanics, but how knowing all this stuff can help your life. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? 
At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.